there is so much out there to get mad about. Social injustices, class warfare, continued colonization, the act of destruction of our planet by those focused on profits and not people. We can find it overwhelming at times. The good news is there are equally as many, if not more, stories of people coming together and rising up against the forces at play. So the creators of Blueprints of Disruption have added a new weekly segment, Ravel Rants, where we will unpack the stories that have us most riled up, share calls to action, and most importantly, celebrate resistance. Search the landfill. Search the landfill. Search the landfill. Search the landfills. Search the landfill. Search the landfill. Search them landfills. Search the landfill. Search the landfill. Search the landfill. Search the landfill. What does that mean? A little bit of a backstory. In Manitoba, right outside of Winnipeg, there is a private landfill. And about seven months ago, police informed the community and family members that the bodies of Morgan Harris and Mercedes Myron were likely there, victims of a serial killer. The Manitoba premier has been told that it'll cost about $184 million to search the landfill to bring closure to the family. And she has decided that that is too much. Since January, a blockade has been set up outside of the landfill, blocking, somewhat blocking the landfill access, right? Another road was was made to give access to, but they call that, that blockade Camp Morgan, right? After Morgan Harris, one of the women. It's important to mention they've already found the remains of Rebecca Contois, and are searching for a fourth woman that the community has named Buffalo Woman. They pretty much know what's happened to these women and they just refuse to go find them. And so the family's obviously fighting back. They've blocked the road. They're making political pleas. Nobody is listening. You know, you've got the liberal minister of Indigenous Affairs pointing the finger at the province, saying they're not going to help unless the province is willing to help, and clearly the province is willing to help. And so now the municipality has served an injunction to the camp to have them forcefully removed. The last thing I saw, they were burning that injunction notice. (laughs) So I went looking for their response to the injunction, and they would gave statements prior that they were not going to be moved by such documents, you know, but... Um, that's pretty much where we're at now. And so you are hearing the calls to search the landfill. I think it's finally getting the attention it deserves, but these folks have been at it since January, trying to bring attention to this issue and, and have them do the right thing. It's hitting the news now, but not for the reasons we wanted it to, you know, uh, based on just like the merit of this story. But recently... Some idiots drove up to the blockade that everyone knows is there and needed it, just desperately needed to unload cedar mulch, was not going to have this blockade stop them and got into it with the protesters there. 
And even though this guy, and I'm going to share his name because he gladly gave an interview, Kyle Klotchko. This man just spewed overt anti-Indigenous racism at the people there. He didn't just have a heated moment. He said things like, take care of your own women. And then dumped his trash on the mural that had been painted on the road there. Santiago, like, put yourself in the position of these folks. These are mostly family members and community members that have set up this blockade. The daughter of one of the missing women. And they just dump their trash while spewing this nonsense at them. Like, the hurt and the anger that must have existed. Yeah, no, this whole situation is incredibly frustrating and infuriating for so many reasons. It's just the continuation of the trend where um, this country keeps saying that the, the indigenous people do not matter to them, that these indigenous women do not matter to them, that um, they refuse to take even the most basic action, um, yet they continuously preach about the whole truth and reconciliation of it all when there's just nothing of the sort I mean, this Kyle guy, I mean, he's he's one asshole, but he's a symptom of of a greater issue in the communities because, I mean, he was bold enough to go and start shoveling shit on a mural, which takes a specific type of hatred to do. But not all forms of hatred are that obvious. And you can guarantee that every single person there is experiencing many different forms of that hatred in their daily life and this is an issue that just doesn't like it doesn't matter if people see this so they there seems to be a refusal to acknowledge how deeply rooted this issue is of of anti-indigenous racism in this country of the discrimination and and it's it's often it's intentional it's also in in our political decisions in our refusal to repair the damage that we caused, that was caused through colonialism. And this is just so frustrating. And like, I, there's always, the, the one thing that also really frustrates me is is the whole money aspect of it, where they're saying, oh, well, it, 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 this is too expensive, so we're not going to do it. When, when we see so often the amount of, bullshit that money that that kind of money gets spent on in a moment's notice as if it's nothing but whenever it's it's for underserved communities whenever it has no benefit to to wealthy canadians then that money is suddenly oh too expensive and not there and 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 that's just a bullshit excuse is what that is yeah and I think rightfully so you've seen comparisons made to the search for the Titan submarine, you know, Mm -hmm. five billionaires go on a really risky adventure that they spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to do, choose to do. And not only is the world riveted to these five missing people, you know, it does present a story, I suppose, but we all had updates, constant updates. I'm sure the families had constant updates and there was going to be no expense spared. The cost, I think it was like $1.4 million to be flying that one Canadian search 
plane over the area, dropping buoys to find them. And in the end, you know, we found out that they pretty much knew it imploded right away when they lost contact. And this was a recovery mission from the get-go. And when we talk about Morgan Harris, Mercedes Myron, Rebecca Contois, and Buffalo Woman, these are four of the thousands of missing and murdered Indigenous women. And we rarely get to hear any of their stories or get updates on how much work is being done to find them. It's just, that's the racism that... I guess isn't so obvious if you're not looking at it. It's not screaming at people, racist epitaphs, but it's it's like in our omission, in our lack of attention to the issue and the price tag, right? $184 million. But even the injunction is pitting, you know, prioritizing the economic rights of a municipality to have to divert their waste to the basic rights of those people, right? To basic human decency, justice, (laughs) if that exists, right? The economic rights of a single municipality have trumped all of that. They issued an injunction. You don't have a right to do this protest anymore. And we talk about being as disruptive as possible because that's the only way you draw attention to the issue. And in the end, it was, right? They went to Kyle's house. They put red painted handprints, which represents murdered and missing Indigenous women and children and two-spirited peoples. And that was a bit of a disruption. Disrupted a white guy's house. They obviously laid a charge against an Indigenous protester, right, <clears throat> at the time. Naturally. Naturally. And and the CBC is now, you know, it, it, it's become primetime news. National news, a national, another national disgrace. And so as... People are still looking underground for the remains of residential school victims. We are demanding that they search the landfills. And like landfills, you'll hear them say, because like, let's kid us not. This is not the only landfill that needs searching. And in fact, when they do need searching for a white man in Ontario, out near London, Ontario, needle in a haystack, they call it needle in a haystack. And the Toronto police went in there and they found him and returned him to his family. There's so much symbolism happening here that that just I feel like it speaks volumes. Um, you know, I, I feel like the fact that it's in a landfill um, and and that they're they're just continuing to 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 put more garbage in that landfill before dealing with this that feels a bit symbolic to me personally um, of how they treat indigenous people in this country, like they are garbage um another thing uh bringing it back to that freaking submarine is you know i remember one thing that was making rounds on twitter when that was happening was that the the stepson of one of of one of the billionaires was you know tweeting jokes about it from like a blink 182 concert meanwhile in this case you have like the daughter of one of the murdered indigenous women who is actively speaking out against this and begging for action to be taken and that's ignored you know it's not ignored she's going to face police action likely we're about look that's the eventual outcome of these court injunctions yeah no but what i mean is that like they they refuse to do anything about yeah like anything that's necessary and and i don't know like all of these things it just it just feels symbolic to me in in a lot of ways it, it it's just 
the subtext of it all, I guess you could say, is and it, and it's just it's so frustrating because yeah, like as with the case in London, you know that this is one this isn't what they do when a white person is murdered. You know that this isn't what they do when a rich person uh isn't even murdered but like just dies in an accident. You know, there we we see the differences in how they treat people and and this like it is so hard to ever try and rebuild when we don't actively take steps against these very symbolic attacks yeah symbolic and at the same time so so deeply personal i can't imagine you know being at camp morgan right now and trying to decide what your next steps are and anticipating what's to happen i do want to give notes of resistance though indigenous peoples understand cedar to have healing properties protective qualities And so they took the cedar chips and they formed a protective circle around the mural. So they took what that white man's trash wasn't trash at all. It could be used. And it was they found a way to take that and use it. And I thought that was so beautiful because I don't think I would have that within me, you know, but that was hopefully worth sharing. And minor political resistance Leah Gazan made some statements, some clear statements. She seems to be standing on her own in terms of the party. Um, But she kind of echoed what you had to say there. It's a reflection of how the lives of Indigenous women, girls, and gender diverse people are constantly devalued. We are a target. We deserve justice. And just recently, she actually made a submission to the UN to look into the different levels of government failure that got us to this place because the liberals are sitting there trying to seem really, oh, well, you know, with a premier like that, what are you going to do? We can't help you. We'd love to. We would love to, but have no committed nothing, have committed nothing of their own. Surely Winnipeg is not going to do it. And Manitoba is not. So is this going to be another one of these things people have to crowdsource in order for it to happen? It's just, this is not reconciliation. No, it's not. And there is no reconciliation. The government can talk about that all they want, but I have yet to see a genuine act of reconciliation. And and, and, and even then, the term reconciliation doesn't nearly go far enough. What we need is decolonization. Yeah, that's just not even on the agenda of anybody who has any say in anything in this country, it seems. I'm going to try to transition to our next topic because the one thing that they have in common is this theme of a Canadian value, reconciliation, you know, like liberals love to pretend that that's one of their main priorities. We also like to sell ourselves as welcoming of migrants, particularly refugees, right? One look to what's happening downtown Toronto outside of 129 Peter Street tells you it's another one of those very symbolic examples to a greater systemic problem between racism, migration, housing, and it's all kind of hit a peak. What I'm talking about for folks that maybe haven't heard, it all starts back really in May when the deputy mayor, everyone loves to thank for her work on the way out, And council decided they were going to go against 
the declaration of being a sanctuary city. A no questions asked where Toronto public services were not dependent on your immigration status. This happened back in 2013. They even reaffirmed it under Tory in 2021. Um, But because of severe underfunding to the shelter system and it being completely at capacity and because they're fucking racist, migrants were shut out of Toronto area shelters. Side note, 273 people are turned away from those shelters daily, Santiago, daily. And just last month, they added 40 people to the Toronto Homeless Memorial. Just to give you an idea of the situation of homelessness in Toronto, which estimates that 8,000 people experience homelessness daily. All right. Most of the migrants, though, that we're talking about at 129 Peter Street are African migrants. And real undertones of racism tie themselves into this story because this did not happen to Ukrainian refugees. The response to Ukrainian refugee influx was exactly what it should have been. Full of compassion, open arms, funding, organized mutual aid. Not so much here, right? So... The good news is there has been some movement. Olivia Chow has used the powers that Toronto Council has to open up additional shelter beds, to put the people that were outside of 129 Peter Street in hotels temporarily. So there has been movement on this. But one of the things I kind of wanted to talk about was the, the mutual aid efforts that existed around this and the questions and stuff that that brings up because we're often talking about how to do a better job you know of mutual aid and and be more effective and there's some horror stories um sorry I'm kind of like hogging the beginning here but I just wanted to like set the stage a little people hear about this people want to help great But folks that are down there trying to coordinate the efforts of mutual aid were telling really horrendous stories of sometimes it's just misplaced efforts. You know, everyone's dropping off on Friday, Saturday, Sunday. That's when it's convenient. They're not working. They can go down. Well, that leaves a lot of unused food, right? If everyone's dropping off food on the weekend, then, then there's piles of spoiled food. People were being really inappropriate food. So... These folks are sleeping on the sidewalk. Security will not even let them string tarps between trees. So I'm talking zero shelter. And people are bringing them raw chicken. Things that clearly need refrigeration. So you you know what I mean? Like, people are helping. You're like, yay. You, You went into your kitchen. You got some food. You got some leftover, like some clothes. Whatever you thought they might need. And you just put it in a bag and you went and dropped it off. We need, you know, that actually sometimes is act, works against what you're trying to do, right? Big piles of spoiled food, piles of unused clothing when there's other encampments, you know, that could, that, there are people who perhaps do need clothing. And so thankfully there are some folks down there that are sharing Google Docs of requests that are coming in, like from the ground. But Santiago, you look into this a little bit in your, in your day job. Yeah, yeah. What, right now, um, 
I'm working as as a research assistant, um, and the the project has to do with this community first program, which um, essentially what it does is instead of having the traditional top down approach to public health care, whereas public health professionals will, will come in and dictate, uh, make decisions of, of what a community needs, they actually um, work to empower the community to be able to make those decisions independently and collaboratively so that they can actually say, no, no, th- th- these are the things we need. And this is also how to make it culturally appropriate and relevant to our community. And I looked at, I don't even, dozens of cases from around the world of similar programs. And what happens every single time that you look at this is you find that when you empower the community, instead of just deciding that you know what they need, that ends up in better results. That is consistent. And when I look at this, like, I want to be a little generous, I guess, in saying that, like, people helping is is a good thing, you know, and and I'm grateful for that. Not raw chicken. Not raw chicken. I'm not... <laughs> uh, but 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 you know like what, what I appreciate I know chicken's expensive okay. Okay. you know like 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 the fact that it is raw chicken shows you know like I I mean that takes a little I can't afford chicken sometimes you know like I I, I I'm grateful for the thought behind it of course but this is why this just emphasizes the importance of actually getting in and asking what do people need because. They know better than anyone what their needs are. And I, like I said, raw chicken's expensive. What That money that bought that raw chicken, that is probably better spent on whatever it is that pe- the people who are actually in need will tell you that they need. And... It's just very important that we remember. And it's also very, like, it's also about treat, like treating with, like, a, a certain respect and humanity of, like, you, these are autonomous individuals with own ideas and, and thoughts. And it's, 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 not, it's, it's not people that just need to be, I don't know. I don't know what the word is. But we need to be treating them with respect and with dignity and that comes with talking i think ideally it doesn't come down to mutual aid all the time like we're seeing right the community shouldn't have to mobilize like this when we are we know exactly how many migrants flock to canada and we rely on immigration for our labor it, it, it it's a natural part of what canada has done for a long time and we refuse to provide adequate housing for folks, newcomers, folks that are already here. I mean, even the advancements that have been made in the funding announcements that we saw six point six million from the province and from Toronto, Olivia Chow and John, Olivia Chow and Doug Ford working together there. That's just a drop in the bucket of what's needed. Um, I will share the link to the Google Doc in the show notes, if people are looking for how to contribute to the mutual aid efforts that are going well, 
uh, Lorraine Lamb on Twitter has shared it, so I will share what she's put together. But if folks are wondering, just general practice, if you have the money, get gift cards, give cash. <laughs> um, that allows people to have the autonomy that they need to spend it on what they need when they need it. And that's a, a, one of the big call outs for folks that are down there is, is, you know, just gift cards that they can then hand out for people. But, and I don't want to imply that there's not organizing around it. There is a lot. Folks like the Black Community Housing Advisory Table has done a lot of work trying to gather resources, but it's just totally inadequate. Even where they are, why are they outside of Peter Street? That's actually a, a it houses part of the city of Toronto's response to shelters and, and it's one of the administrative buildings. And workers out there aren't even coming out to assist with these efforts. It's completely been left up to the community to connect with one another ad hoc and figure out how to best do this. Some churches took them in, but it's like 95 people with two bathrooms, no showers. It's rough. So the, it is. Even the, the refuge that's provided is not adequate at no. all. And one, one thing I, um, I, this just, I just remembered something as we're talking about all of this. I remember a conversation I had maybe three years ago um, with somebody who was experiencing homelessness, um, who was a, a refugee from, I, I believe, Somalia. Uh, their name was Biruk. And I ran into them near where I live in Toronto and... And I was I was having a, a conversation with them and the things they were telling me is a story that is just so common for so many people who come to Canada seeking something better, which is, you know, this this idea of the Canadian dream, this idea that there is potential to to make something here. And he was telling me that he came searching for that, but he's never felt more alone in his life. That he was poor back home, but that he had people, that he he was surviving. But that here he was all alone and he had nothing. And he thought he would have enough money to send back home to his family who was still there. And he didn't. And, and I remember when we were talking at one point, like I, I hugged him and he told me that that was the first time in a year that anybody had hugged him. And, and it was heartbreaking for me. And what's heartbreaking is also the fact that it's not even close to being a unique story. It's a story of so many people here. And when I said earlier about how, you know, Canada just has entirely too good of a PR team. Like, we're lying to people about what life will be like here. We're lying to them. We're exploiting people. And, we're, and that's what this country is built on. It's built on lies and exploitation. And we keep doing it. It's not in the past. We keep doing this over and over again. The least we can do 
the very least we can do is make sure that people have the bare minimum standards of life. And we're not even doing that. So, I don't know. I just, I needed to say this because there's so much more that needs to be done. And I think (sighs) it's a dangerous time, too, because of the scapegoating that's happening. And so when these conditions happen where there's 50 plus people living on the street, that's dangerous for them. I fear for them um, because of what happened when, you know, Sue Ann Levy starts going off about where the hotels are that are housing refugees. Next thing you know, there's arson at those lo- at that location. You know, there is a great swell of hatred and xenophobia that exists. And frankly, the city of Toronto is inflaming it. I was reading a thread right before we recorded today from... AJ Withers on Twitter, and it was amplified by the Shelter and Housing Justice Network. It explains, gives you a little historical perspective that I also provided at the show of declaring Sanctuary City and breaching that policy. But the narratives that have come out of the city of Toronto have been just horrendous. They are actively scapegoating asylum seekers and using them as an excuse as why the shelters are at capacity when we knew they have been at capacity always. And they've denied that for a really long time. And now all of a sudden they're willing to admit it only because it fits the narrative of this this flood of refugees, as people like to describe it, like as some sort of natural disaster that we weren't completely expecting and can accommodate for. But Another thing that really enraged me that people need to know that AJ brought up that just like lets you know that this was just racist trash, like this was deliberate by the city of Toronto when they were providing, collecting and then providing data on how many refugees were within the Toronto shelter system. They included anyone who came to Canada as a refugee. So this includes people who have since obtained citizenship. It includes the people who roughly wait about nine years to go through the entire process of seeking asylum within Canada. And so it wasn't this influx that they were describing that fit with the narrative that the right was pushing at the very same time. You know, Roxbury Road, spending money on hotel rooms, um, that real othering. And they completely contributed to that. It's it's shameful. And Olivia Chow wouldn't condemn them for it. She blamed the politicians. She blamed council rightfully for voting to, you know, go against their sanctuary city promises. But there's some service providers there that went along with it and, and city managers that should be ashamed of themselves. One thing I also want to mention, and I know like our audience knows all of these things, but I just I need to say it is, you know, there's a lot of. You hear whenever there's talk about refugees, people say, well, you know, why why is it our responsibility to do anything at all? When I, as a reminder, like just reminder is that we are directly responsible for creating so many of these crises that have made um, their home countries not places where they can live. Canada has been an imperialist, colonialist power and 
I mean, here we're talking about African refugees. Take a look at who has the most mining companies in Africa. And take a look at what kind of conditions those mine <laughs> those mines are operated under. And take a look at the involvement in Canada in overthrowing democratically elected governments in these countries. And in help in helping create conditions for wars, for political gains. And then say that this isn't our responsibility to deal with. It, I, I, I remember having this debate when the Syrian refugee crisis was a, a big topic back in, in 2016, 2015 era. And the same things were true then as they are now, which is that this we are responsible and we need to do better and there is no such thing as doing enough there is not enough we cannot make up we can't even come close to make up what we have done but we need to do everything we can to improve the lives of as many people as possible because that is our responsibility as global citizens and that is supposed to be what you know, when when you learn about what Canadian values are supposed to be in, in school, that's what they try and act like our values are. You know, we're very proud of the whole peacekeepers. We're multicultural, yeah. right? Like that is something that we've been selling for a long time. It's what people say, but but then our actions don't reflect that. Our actions are the opposite. So how about we, we try just a little bit harder? to be what people think we are instead of just being good PR we actually try and help people like I feel like that's not asking a lot you know no and that could be said about both of the stories that we talked about today the the level of accountability that the government of Canada levels of government hold but also the community not the indigenous community I'm talking about, like the Canadian community that has allowed it to get to this point, right? A talk, a big game about reconciliation, but have gone back to celebrating Canada Day and um, the that overt racist white nationalist trash that's rising, you know, contributes to the fuel that others, indigenous people and migrants, and I think makes room for the Kyles to dump their trash, thinking they can get away with that, that there's space for that. And the reality is, you know, space has certainly been made for this. And um, our response has to definitely be more than scooping a few of them up and putting them in hotels or in the case of the landfill, doing absolutely nothing at all. Nothing. I know people talk about immigrants like, oh, they're so resilient. They say this about children. But those people are absorbing trauma through this. You know, even if they pull it together and whatever you think that means and persevere and all these stories of hardship, they are celebrated, right? And even on the left, it's like, I hate to, to get on her again, but it just came to mind. Like Olivia Chow tells the story of her family often, and it's a hard one, right, of struggling through a father with disability and a mother having to work many jobs. But 
I don't think we kind of condemn that, 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 that these hardships exist enough for immigrants. You know, it's not a badge that they should have to fucking wear afterwards. But No, and it's, it's all, it's so unique to every immigrant's story too. Like where there's so many differences, like, cause I, I'm, I'm a lucky immigrant, you could say, right? Where we had enough, where when we showed up, they gave us a Canadian passport because that's how it was at the time. We didn't have to jump through all these hoops. And, you know, there was a job waiting for my dad and and we never had to struggle in that way. And I just see, like, so many other examples. Like, there's the, the the horrible, horrible examples. And then there's just the, the also just more ordinary, everyday, horrible stuff. Like, you know, I think of my, my friend's head here who, you know, doesn't know about where his immigration status is going to go. Where there's so much just uncertainty of, like, you know building something here, putting down roots here, but doesn't even know if he'll be able to stay here. Yeah, because that was new to me. I should have known this, but nine years is a long time to live somewhere and not still know if that's going to be your permanent home. Like that's approximately how long it can take from the time you arrive and put in your application and have your hearings and all of that and find out if you're not going to be sent back. And with Peter Street, I think it mixes this hardship of seeking asylum, especially, to our disdain for un- the un- unhoused people, you know, and the fact that the city and the province and the federal government can always find millions and millions of dollars quite quickly to respond to things natural disasters, war, you, you name it, you know, quite a, so many examples, bailing banks out. There's just so many examples of where the money was just gotten, not budgeted for, but found very quickly to respond to something. And, but when it comes to the fact that there are people living on the sidewalk, uh, it's just, it seems to be insurmountable or, you know, it's, been seven months in a landfill so there's just no way we can find anything or at least not for something less expensive you know it's it's that intersectionality you know we talk about occasionally on and that people need to learn more about honestly but when you think about you know the xenophobiaism the the racism the anti-poverty attitudes of the city and and how that impacts actual people right like human beings children and it's intentional too like because they need to create this hatred because otherwise they would be dealing with outrage if people if everybody was able to like look at this these communities and and really see them as as the individuals that they are as the people whose lives are 
are just as valuable and just as complex as our own, there would be outrage. But instead, there needs to be that dehumanization to be able to to tolerate our treatment of other people. It is. Yeah, that's absolutely the first step in othering, right? It's just less than. And that's so much easier to do when folks are struggling themselves, right? It's so much easier to be like, well, why should they get this? You know, I can't make ends meet. Why Why is the government providing handouts? If we were all doing well and not fighting amongst each other for what the bosses leave over, it would be so much easier to convince people that we had the capacity to then bring people in warmly, safely, with dignity. And, but no, this is that scapegoating that history provides many examples of it being done successfully to distract from the actual issues facing people. And we talked about this in the disability episode. It's absolutely necessary to have a class of folks as an example of what happens when you... Is what, is what people says say to you when, like, I hear it all the time because I'm a, I'm a young person who's, you know, making decisions about what my life is going to look like with school and things. You know, people say to the phrase, oh, do you want to end up homeless on the street? You know, they say, they, they like threaten you with the lives that these people have been forced to live. You know, they, they use that. Yeah. There's a reason for that. Just as a reminder, amid all of this despair and hardship, there are amazing people doing some amazing work on the ground. Again, we'll point you to those folks in our show notes. But I get some of my information from people like Diana Chan McNally, a community worker and homelessness advocate, giving updates on what is happening, what people need in the city on the ground. Also, Folks like Lorraine Lamb, I mentioned her earlier, it's community members coming together to do what they can, and they've been doing it for a long time, and I think it's time we give them a hand. There's also a GoFundMe that has been set up, and I also don't like that it always comes down to this, but these are desperate times, and we can't let people flounder while we wait for federal funding. Again, a shout-out to Camp Morgan and the people outside of the Brady Landfill in Manitoba. Solidarity with their resistance. You might have noticed that this episode was a little bit different from what we normally do. We're going to try to do this every week. Santiago and I will come together. We'll rant about what makes us angry, but we will also provide examples of resistance to all of this. I hope you'll join us next week. These rabble rants are in addition to the work we do at Blueprints of Disruption, which will continue to release more in-depth, first-hand accounts of the work being done on the ground. Be sure to always check out our show notes for links to the stories we cover and the people doing the work around it. Until next week. That is a wrap on another episode of Blueprints of Disruption. Thank you for joining us. Also, a very big thank you to the producer of our show, Santiago Halu Quintero. Blueprints of Disruption is an independent production operated cooperatively. You can follow us on Twitter at BP of Disruption. If you'd like to help us continue disrupting the status quo, 
please share our content, and if you have the means, consider becoming a patron. Not only does our support come from the progressive community, so does our content. So reach out to us and let us know what or who we should be amplifying. So until next time, keep disrupting.